Well, thank you, 1908, for leading us in worship this morning. I'm being reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, being reminded that, yes, it is indeed true, we have already won the victory because Christ has defeated sin, has defeated death. This is the gospel, and we're here to proclaim it together this morning. I love Southwestern. I really appreciate the invitation to be here. Many years ago, the Lord brought me here, met my wife here, and I hope for many more years that we can continue to do what God has called Southwestern to do, which is to train ministers, to train pastors, who then go forth to preach the gospel in this darkened world. And yet sometimes we don't always do that well. Sometimes in our best abilities to try and lead and follow Jesus Christ, we fail. And I think part of that is, is that we get our eyes off the prize. We don't focus where we need to focus. And we end up forming ourselves in ways that are formed more like the world than they are like the Bible. And the Bible points us to the one and holy true God. And our text this morning uh, takes us to that point. So I just want to start off by asking the question, what is forming you? How are you being formed? Do you think about this in your life, the things that you take in, the people that you're around? How are they shaping you? How are they forming you? How are they making you into the person that you feel God's called you to be? Or who are the people that you are imitating? Those leaders that are around you, like, I want to be like him. Does your YouTube view list look like Christ or something else? What's forming you? All kinds of things form us, right? We have to to recognize this, that the culture around us is forming us in a certain way. Family, food, books that we read, the people that we hang around, they all have influences on our lives and form us in particular ways. Music in particular does that. And I I can say this because I'm a mediocre musician myself. Um, Thank you for doing a great job for us this morning. Um, Really love seeing all the different guitars up here. And so just kind of having a a little bit of jealousy for owning my own Jaguar one day. So thank you for that. Um, And so I was was shaped by 90s alternative rock, right? That's, if you want to know me, this just comes out a little bit. I was driving home with my son Harrison. He's sitting here in the middle. Uh, There's two CDs in my car right now. Yes, I have CDs. My car is that old. Um, And there's two CDs in there. And and one is David Crowder and the other one is Counting Crows, August and Everything After. I I remember the first time I heard this album, it was 1993. I'm 13 years old uh, and and on a youth trip. And it's presented to me. I'm like, what is this gloriousness that's come to us? And I recognize that God in his beneficence has allowed me to exist at this time to know that 90s rock is where it's at, right? Pearl Jam, Nirvana. Weezer, I mean, come on. I mean, when I heard Buddy Holly, I'm like, 
this is just amazing. And they brought the 1950s back into it with their music video. Those things do exist out there. That's something we did in the 80s and 90s on MTV, but that's gone. All these things shape us, right? We can laugh about this. These things shape us. They form us who we are. And the music that we listen to puts something into us. There's a, there's a book out on the 90s by Chuck Klosterman who looks at this time period and says, what, when does the 90s really begin? And a lot of people want to say, well, this is when, you know, things are going on geopolitically and when Russia's falling down. He's like, no, none of that happens. The 90s began when Kurt Cobain writes the song, Never Mind. And it changed the culture and it changed the people that I was a part of and how we think and how we thought, and how we walked, how we engaged politically, how we engaged with one another. It formed me. It formed me in a very particular way that might not be good. So sometimes culture is just neutral in the forming of us, but we need to be careful and aware that things are forming us, right? I would recommend James K. Smith's book, You Are What You Love, as, as an excellent example of paying attention to what is around us that is forming us and shaping us into what we need to be. Not what we want to be, but what we need to be is what God wants us to be for this world because we're here to work for him. So what's shaping us? What's our attitude? And where are we ill-formed? So this morning, looking at this text, I just want to title this sermon, Humility, the Example. So when we look at this text, we can say, here is something that can form me. Here is something that can take me from where I'm at to a place that I need to be. And so we want to pay close attention to what this text is bringing to us today because we don't want to be ill-formed. We don't want to be the ministers out there that are leading people astray, not just in false teaching, but in the character and attitude that we are inculcating into the people around us. So right now, those of you who are students, listen well, make sure you're being formed well, but those of you who are with me, and I'm speaking to myself more than any of you to understand this, that staff, faculty, staff, we are forming the students here and we have to do this right. Because what's at stake here is not a grade. It's not graduation. What's at stake here is that we are forming the leaders of the church and the churches of the kingdom of God. And when we don't do this well, our mission doesn't do well. That's what's at stake. So we listen well. How can we be formed? What should we look at here? And Paul, understanding all of this and, and the help of the Holy Spirit has written this many years ago to constantly come back to us because we humans are a dull and dense people and we have to be reminded time and time again of the truth of what we are supposed to be. So here we have this in Philippians 2. I wanna begin at the, at the passage, beginning of the first part, just to lead into our text for today. Dr. Taylor did a great job last week. I'm not going back over that, but I think it's helpful to set the context of what we're going to do. So if there is an, any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And notice this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, Consider others as more important than yourselves. 
Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interest of others. And if that text does not slap you in the face, you are not reading it well. If you're not reminded of the depths of your sin and how you fail day in, day out, how I fail day in, day out, it's just there. Just so you know this, I know I'm preaching a text this week on humility and even going out my work life this week, I was confronted, am I gonna be humble or am I gonna let the flesh take over? Because it's a day in and day out. How am I gonna lead? How am I gonna serve? Is it in accordance with what Paul's saying here, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit? Or am I gonna fall back into the worldly lusts that are around us and not show Christ? This is something for all of us. We need to be reminded of this. So when we look at five through 11, uh, you, you read this and it's like, oh, there's so much here. And there is. But exegetically, because we're all Bible learners here, it really is just simple. There's one point here and one illustration. It's a command that God is giving to us and a hymn that serves as an example of how we live out that command. So we look at this, the, the command, adopt the same attitude. Adopt the same attitude. Have this way of thinking, or more simply, think this way. So when we see that, that imperative is there before us, like we're supposed to think a certain way and act a certain way, I'll ask the question, is like, how do you make decisions? How are you making decisions right now? Because we're all making decisions every day, right? So when this service is over, you're like, I'm gonna go eat lunch somewhere. Some of you are going to class, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Some of you are gonna go eat somewhere and you have decisions to make. Is this something that you brought? Uh, I mean, I know that there are some decisions that are better than others when we, when we think this way, right? So like the obvious answer is go to Whataburger because that's, we're Texans. That's what we're supposed to do. And so, so we head that way. But more seriously, when we make decisions, how are we making decisions? You're making decisions right now about who you're gonna marry. That's a lifelong decision that you should be wise about. We're making decisions about where we're gonna go serve the Lord. Should I be a missionary? Some of you are feeling that call right now. God, are you calling me overseas? Am I supposed to go there? How are you gonna make that decision? Is it gonna be based upon the flesh or based upon the spirit? And that's how we think wisely. That's how we adopt the same attitude. That's how we make decisions, not just about the intellectual things day in, day out, or the, those small decisions, though they're important, or the big life decisions, but decisions that we make morally. What is right and what is wrong? And Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Ethics that was published posthumously, um, he writes a lot about how ethics forms us and, and, and what it is, but his whole approach to it is not to come up with some theory of how we decide what is right and wrong. He says that really all we have is Jesus and then everything else builds from that. That's Madison's interpretation. But that's the reality. We begin with who God is and then live out a life from that. So we're, to have this attitude that we're supposed to adopt is predicated upon something else. What is that something else? It's the second part of this sentence that doesn't even have a verb with it. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. So the other side of the command is, is the way in which we're supposed to do this. How am I supposed to think wisely? How am I supposed to make right decisions? I make them by looking at Jesus Christ. Imitation is what we're called to here. We're supposed to look like Christ day in, day out. 
People say that imitation is the best form of flattery, but when we see it in this context, imitation itself is the best form of praise. We live out our life for God by the way in which that we imitate Jesus Christ day in, day out, that we should wake up every morning saying, how can I be more like Christ today? How can I imitate him to those that are around me? How can I love my wife by looking like Christ? How can I love my children by looking like Christ? How can I be a teacher in the classroom to these students by looking like Christ? How can I be a leader in the convention? I need to look like Christ. And the reality is that we have people around us that that's not their main concern. And I want to call all of us, myself included here, to say, have you adopted the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus? Well, what is it? We're supposed to be like Christ, and there's so much in Christology that's so good and so important that we should dive into. But here, Paul just says, you know what? I don't need to write out another diatribe of what theology is in Christ. You Philippians, you already sing this. This is, this is a part of your formation. You've been saying this over and over. And so he just appeals to an early church hymn that they already know. Now, educationally, teachers, this is brilliant because we go to where our people already are at and use something that they have. Paul does this all the time and it helps them re- remember, but it's also true. It's the truth about who Christ is. So when, when we look at this hymn, I want us to understand this is an example of the imperative of, chapter, of verse five. That, that's, that's really all it is. So if you were coming here thinking, okay, Dr. Grace is gonna get up and he's going to expound and explain all the, the, the difficulties of the Christological problems that we can find here, I'm gonna say, yeah, I would love to do that. I teach a class called Systematic Theology Two. sign up for that. Better yet, take it with Dr. Bingham or Dr. Yarnell. And so they will, they will teach you this. Enrollment starts soon, right, Dr. Dockery? We need all of you to sign up again and, and take you know, a good number of hours so that you can finish here. But this text is, is showing us that whatever theological truths that we can find here and what other concerns we can think about it, like well, who, if Paul didn't write this hymn, who wrote the hymn? Does that still make it authoritative? Yes, it does. It's in the letter. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We have New Testament courses you can take that can talk about that. Dr. Taylor, Dr. Wicker, Dr. Street, they'd love to walk through Philippians a little bit more with you. But when we look at this, we need to see this holistically. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. How do we do that? Well, we need to break it down and understand that this is the example of the virtue of humility that all of us have to inculcate in our lives day in and day out. We look to Jesus. So how do we do this? Let me break it down for us. First of all, I want us to go to the second line there. It says, he did not consider. He did not consider. And why do I start there? Because I want us to recognize here that this is an action on the part of the son of God. The second person of the Trinity is making a decision. He is acting in a certain way here within the Trinity to act on our behalf. Lest we come to this and start thinking like, well, there's some sense of subordination that's at play here. There is none. God is Trinity. And that's what we have to understand here. So he is making a decision, a decision to be humble. Well, what does that humility look like? Well, the poetry of this hymn just comes out out to us in in particular ways, especially we look at the word form. Jesus Christ did not consider equality with God because he existed in the form of God. What does that mean to be exist in the form of God? It's real simply, it's saying that the son of God is God. 
We can look at this passage. We can look at John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. We can look at uh, Colossians 1, uh, where we can see that how Jesus existed. We can look at Hebrews 1 to see that he is the, the radiance of the glory of God. All of these passages together are helping us understand that when we look at the Son of God, we're not seeing a, a lesser being. We're seeing God himself. And so here's the point with the humility that we're talking about the subject, the Son of God, who is God. He sees himself in the form of God, but what? Here's the humility. He does not think that that is something to be exploited, to be grasped, to be held onto, to be clutched. See, the, the example here is like those who want to come to power are afraid of losing power. Those that are in the flesh that think that way. But those who have the divine birthright to have power, they're not worried about losing it because it's theirs in and of themselves. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, Though the son of God is in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what did he do though? Well, he's acting that way in, in, in ways of submitting himself to the father. I see this very clearly when we look in, in like Luke in the garden, when Jesus is sweating drops of blood on our behalf because of what he's about to do. And what does he say? Father, take this cup from me but not my will, but yours. It's an action of humility that we see there. And I think that's what this passage is pointing us to. Secondly, he's taking the form of a servant, he's taking the form of a slave. And so if you can think about this, that the, the, here's God, highest of all, and he's coming to be lowest of low. So this is the humility, this is the humiliation. He's coming from being the creator of all to being one who's going to be despised and rejected. It's the form. The form of God becomes the form of the servant. And so when we look at this in particular, and this is like the money verse that theologians have really looked at for the centuries, and they've spilt lots of bottles of ink and other things over this passage right here, where they are seeing that what does this word mean that he takes on the likeness of humanity, that he empties himself? And this is a major mystery that we're getting into of understanding how the son of God assumes humanity. And so one of the, the greatest things in theology is trying to understand what this means, how those two things come together, importantly for us how the Trinity exists. And all this is found here, but I want us to not go deep into that, but recognize that he empties himself is a way of saying that he's taken the form of God and become the form of the servant. And what form does he really come in as a servant? What is this lowliness? What is this humility that he's aiming at here? And what does the text say? The type of humility he comes at is that he takes on the likeness of humanity. He becomes like us. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, wait a second. I thought humanity was the, the pinnacle of creation. And, and so this text seems to say like, we, we're the lowest of the lows. I'm like, that's exactly right. Because if you don't read this and see, thank you, Jesus, I know I'm low and I'm needed to be lifted higher, that then you are just caught up in the self-righteousness that cannot allow the gospel to come over you. When we're confronted with the gospel, all we can do in honesty is say, I am unworthy. 
Remember, the Bible says the best that we can do, the best righteousness that we can create are filthy rags. And so he comes like one of us. So in John 1, when we, we see the incarnation there, we see that Jesus Christ has uh, pitched his tent with us. He has become enfleshed with us, become one of us. We have to recognize it is an act of humility. He who was in the form of God did not think equality with God a thing to be exploited, but he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he further humbled himself. And we see the depth of his descension and condescension into saying like, I not only have I become a human, but I'm being put to death. Light of light, life of life coming to death. This is humility. This is what it looks like. And what does it say here? Even to death on a cross. I think we can miss that sometimes. That we can overlook the reality of what's going on with the cross. And yes, we can pay attention. It was the agony that Jesus felt there as he hung there with nails going through his hands the crown of thorns being beat into his skull with having been whipped and losing all of his strength. But we have to recognize in this sense that the death on a cross, it's showing the public shame that came along with the type of execution that our Lord endured. There's this, there's this scene in The Chosen early on where the guy who's playing Jesus is walking into town and he sees a crucifixion and you, just, and you just see him stop for a moment and look up at that. And I love how that, that captures that. I know you've got all kinds of opinions about that show, not interested. In that moment, <laughs> in that moment, it's just kind of like Jesus was aware. That's the type of shame I'm gonna have to endure. It's not just he's showing us humility, he endures humiliation naked, exposed for all the world to see, even to death on a cross. So let's just pause. What type of humility are you inculcating in your life? Who are you imitating? This type of humility? But that's not the end, right? Verse nine, for this reason. And so... Um, we get to see like the, the other side of this. And back in verse eight, we find that the reality is that Jesus himself is showing this by being obedient. You can't miss that word in this text is that this humility that he's leading at is actually an action again, that he's choosing to be humble every single day, that he could have stopped this at any moment because he has the power because he is God, but he was becoming obedient. Now, why is it necessary that our Lord is obedient in this way is because we were disobedient. Paul takes us again to Romans chapter five and shows us that sense of that grand exchange, that sin came in the world through one man, but through the one man, Jesus Christ, we have salvation. And that occurs because he was obedient and even obedient to death on a cross so that he can make full atonement for us. And because he did this work, because he was obedient to the father, because he said, not my will, but yours be done, 
God exalted him. And, and I was working through this passage and I'm like, this is right. For us to talk about humility in this way, but it, it can seem very transactional. It's like, okay, I get it. If I act humble, God's going to exalt me. And that, that's not what's going on here. There's nothing transactional that's here. We're not asking you to be Jesus. He's already paid for your sins because you can't pay for your own. You need to exist in the form of the humble servant by not trying to be Jesus, but by worshiping and understanding him. And that's what the rest of the passage is about. So Jesus is exalted. Why doesn't he want to exalt himself during his ministry? Because he knows like, I must do this. It's the will of the father to accomplish this. And because I'm going to put back on what I set down when I came to this earth, because the divine birthright is mine, because I am in the form of God. And so for this reason that I was obedient in ways that these humans never could be obedient, I now have the ability to be exalted. And what is that exaltation? That the one who is life has come down to us and has died and tasted death. But when that death tasted God, who is life, death was defeated. And that's the reality. Why does he exalt himself before them? Because his work was actually to defeat sin and death. And he actually had to confront death in order for that to happen. That's the humility that we have to look at here. And for that reason, he is highly exalted. And when he's highly exalted, what is he given? He's given a name, the name that is above every name. And so here, this is not a sense for us to, to think about this, that, okay, now we can see about exaltation. This is for us to look at this passage and realize Jesus didn't need to tell us that he's going back to re regain the form of God again, he's saying, now you can know this too. Now you can participate in this because of my work that you are now unified with me. My spirit lives within you. And there's a way in which that we are participating with God and are invited in as adopted children to come into the very presence of God and to see that exaltation that we were denied before that. And only comes to the humility that he had. So what does that look like? Every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under the earth. There is no one in creation that's not going to look and say, Jesus declares, deserves the exaltation. Jesus de deserves this honor here. We can't have this vision of those that go to hell thinking like, okay, well, I just don't like those people. This is horrible. This is, this is an awful place to be. What they're going to do is they're going to look and see Jesus and to understand that he really is the exalted one. They don't see, reap the benefits of salvation, but they do recognize the true Lord of all. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This exaltation is important for us to recognize who Jesus Christ is. And what was confessed so many years ago, we have to come back again and, and, and see, like, why do we have to understand all these things about Jesus? Why is he in the form of God who then becomes the form of a servant? Why is that important for us to understand? Because that's where our salvation really comes together. Because if he wasn't both of those things, then we would not be saved. If he stopped at even one moment before he dies on the cross, he doesn't actually defeat death. And we don't get to participate in the exaltation and see God for who he is. So this is why the early church 
declared that this same son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood and all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of natures not being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God the Word. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. And don't tell me church history doesn't preach. That is who our Lord is. That's who we confess. Because apart from that, we get him wrong. We're not formed rightly. So this him falls in the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This hymn reminds us of what he's done for us. Reminds us how he's exalted now and calls us to follow after him in every way that we can. For what reason? To the glory of God the Father. So as we close today, I just want to ask that same question again. What's forming you? Who are you imitating? And I think for many of us, we just need to do business. 1908 is going to come back up here in a second. They're going to sing a, a song about the work of the Lord and what he's done for us. So sing it, praise it, give glory to God. Some of you need to actually rethink your own life. Who are you trying to be? Is it someone in the image of Christ or something less than that? Because if you're trying to be something less than that, then recognize it doesn't lead you anywhere. So some of us need to repent. Some of us need to realign, realign our lives. All of us need to build a rhythm of active humility in our lives day in and day out. We need to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus.